0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello
1: and welcome. I'm Georgina Wright from the Institute of Government's Brexit team. Um, Though this morning we will not be talking about Brexit. Um, In four days' time, Americans will go to the polls to elect their new president. More than 69 million citizens have already cast their vote. Many key states like Texas and Florida have seen record turnout already. The stakes are high and the outcome will have an impact not only on the US, but also on its relationships with countries around the world. In this event, we will be looking more closely at what the election and the result of the election will mean for the UK. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by a very distinguished panel, Tobias Elwood, MP and Chair of the Defence Select Committee, Sophia Gaston, Director of the British Foreign Policy Group, Sir Peter Westmacott, former British ambassador to the United States, and now a senior advisor at Chatham House. He also has a book entitled They Call It Diplomacy, published by head of Zeus, which is coming out in February. So watch out for that. And Dr. Leslie Murray, director of the US and Americas program and dean of the Queen Elizabeth II Academy for Leadership in International Affairs at Chatham House. Thank you all very much for being here. Now, before we start, just a few housekeeping rules. Uh, this event is being live streamed. There will be a recording available on all our social media platforms um, after the event, if you wish to watch this all over again. We will be live tweeting, so please do tweet as well um, using the hashtag IFGPOTUS2020. And if you'd like to submit a question, please do so in the chat box. We have a Q&A monitor who will make sure that I see all your questions and I will do my absolute best to ask them all. Now, we have about 50, sort of 55 minutes to really um, delve into this topic. So let's get the discussion underway and do keep your questions coming. Um, Before we delve into what this might mean for the UK, I thought it might be helpful to remind our viewers and listeners how the campaign is going at the moment. So, Leslie, perhaps I could start with you. Um, How much of foreign affairs been a feature in your view in this election?
2: And just remind you
1: i are on mute so you'll have to unmute yourself.
2: Thank you uh and thank you to all of you for having me especially to you Georgie um it's an important conversation I know that a lot of us are having this conversation but I'm not sure we can have it enough to be honest especially right now. Foreign affairs you know as we all know from watching the polling um don't formally rank in this election we certainly know it from watching the debates even when there was an effort in the final presidential debate to talk about China or to talk about electoral interference by you know China or Iran and um, to talk about climate change it, it's really difficult to get to get the president uh, or the vice president to stay on message because it's not where Americans minds are. Um, the, the, the dominant concern is the pandemic, um, it is the economy, it is the recovery, um, but I think that it, it's probably not right to say that foreign affairs don't matter because of course all of those big issues whether it's the style of leadership that we are seeing from president trump um when when voters are voting and it's a referendum on him it's also a referendum on foreign affairs right a large part of how people see the president is how he conducts himself uh, overseas a large when people say that the most important electoral issue is the pandemic and it is A lot of that has to do um, indirectly with huge foreign affairs issues, whether it's how you manage borders, how the relationship with China has been managed. When people say it's about the economy, of course, you know, they're not saying it's about foreign affairs, but Americans know it's in the dialogue now that that means it's about trade. It's about China. Um, But the election, you know, if you look at the polling, it's about the climate. It's about the economy. It's about inequality in a very serious way. And that gets embedded in the question of the economy, and it's and it's also very much as we know about um, young, young voters' issues, and it's about um, questions of minority and minority status in America, racial minorities in particular. So they look like domestic issues, but I think um, we shouldn't dismiss how much the big foreign affairs issues are embedded even in those domestic issues. Thank you very much for that.
1: Um... Tobias, uh, perhaps I can come to you now. Um, obviously, Leslie mentioned quite a few of those challenges, many of them domestic, but also with like a foreign policy, uh, uh, you know, twing or, or impact to that. Um, do you think they're the same for the UK?
3: Thank you very much indeed for allowing me to join such an esteemed panel, and it is absolutely appropriate that we discuss these matters because uh, Britain, I think, is at an inflection point as to what is our role. In the world. What should we be doing uh, given where things are heading? I predict that, uh, I can't predict what's going to happen over the next 10 years, but I can predict that it's probably going to be a lot bumpier than the last. And there's a number of changing features that both the United States and Britain really should be working together with and are currently not uh, doing so. Uh, We have some legacy issues which are causing, uh, continue to cause concern, Uh, instability in places like Libya, in the Sahar, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, places where we've not really finished off and ensured that democracy can continue and therefore problems emerge from those, whether it be migration or extremism and so forth. So much to do on that front. Then, of course, we've got this massive geopolitical tilt towards China, something that we've been in denial about over the last couple of years and perhaps has raised its head because of China's conduct during this pandemic. Uh, they are on a mission. It's very clear where they want to go. It's not very clear how the West is going to uh, respond. And that's another aspect of perhaps the last few years. A characteristic is the absence of what the West stands for, what we believe in, what we are willing to fight, what we're willing to stand up and, and do to protect what we are, uh, uh, our hard for values, which have, have been around, uh, including the architecture for the last 50 years, but are now seem to be looking rather dated. And then another dimension to this, which is, is the perhaps the changing character of conflict. It's less about terrain now. It's actually more about ownership of data. We can, I, I fear, we're slipping towards a, a cold war, in fact, but not with weapon systems building up either side of an iron curtain, but more bypassing um, direct military conflict and economic harm caused by interference through data manipulation interference with elections and so forth, causing uh, discourse amongst nations and peoples for the benefit of an adversary. So some really big questions, therefore, for the United States and Britain. And if we look back over the last four years, the America First project by the United States, they've really not read the uh, the unwritten rules that come with being the United States president, that there is a sense of duty to lead the West. And what we'd be looking for, perhaps, is, is to re-engage with Britain. And for Britain, I'll put my hand up and say, we need to do exactly the same. This integrated review that we're our own study, if you like, of what Britain's place is in the world, is very, very timely indeed. So we should be encouraging both of us to recognize that uh, if we don't do it, then the change of this presidency, uh, this opportunity to perhaps readdress some of the challenges around the world will have long lasting consequences uh, with the geopolitical tilt
1: to uh, the Far East. Thank you very much for that. And I'm sure these are like some of the issues that we'll come back to later in the discussion, um, particularly around China, but also how we could work together on the Middle East. Um, Sophia, maybe I can turn to you. You've spent a lot of time looking at voter trends and what they might tell us about voter attitudes and expectations. What do you think the campaign so far has taught us about kind of American voters' expectations? And what do they really care about, in, in your view?
0: Thank you so much, Georgie. I'm very grateful to the IFG for hosting me here today, um, and especially amongst such an illustrious panel. I think we do like to think here in the UK that we are very polarised at the moment, but uh, I think I don't think we can overstate the degree to which polarisation is has really taken force amongst the United States electorate. Um, And I think that's really important to note because this is something that is obviously playing out in the election campaign, but also will be uh, weighing on whomever takes power uh, after the elections next week. This is actually quite a significant threat and challenge to governance for the United States moving forward. And I think even just in the foreign policy community, it's important to remember that that does uh, have quite a significant influence on the choices that the United States, makes well I um i think leslie's already touched on some of the key issues that are in play obviously we know that the pandemic and the economy uh is is very prominent we've also got uh these incredibly uh powerful uh racial injustice movements uh we've also got the sort of other side of that which is around law and order um and i think there's also something quite potent around the machinery of our of america's democracy which is you know, there's these questions around the Supreme Court, uh, gerrymandering, DC statehood and so on. So I think these are all quite powerful. The important thing to note is that uh, with an environment of polarization, I think the choice does feel especially existential. Uh, we're seeing that flow into uh, some of the extraordinary early voting figures that uh, are coming through. We've just seen 80 million Americas, Americans have now cast a vote, which is quite extraordinary. But I think also just to pick up on Something that uh, Leslie also mentioned. I do think, with regards to foreign policy, uh, it's not necessarily at the forefront of people's minds, but I do think it has a really diffuse effect in the election. Um, You know, one of the clearest trends when we look at public opinion about the U.S. from uh, Britain's and, and other allied partners uh, is just the really shocking degree to which America's standing in the world has declined uh, in the opinions of citizens uh, around the world. I mean, even our uh, research that we've been doing at the BFPG, just 28% of Britons now trust America to act as a responsible nation in the world. And I think that this might be... an area in which this America First project has stumbled a little bit, because I think that the American people uh, do like the idea of uh, national prestige. And I think uh, while it it obviously tapped into a sense of America being a leader and perhaps a, a stronger focus on domestic priorities, I think that actually the idea of being a leader amongst friends was very important. And I think that the American people are a little bit conscious of of feeling as though they're standing alone at the moment. So um, I think at the end of the day, the message that Biden is trying to push is not dissimilar to the message we had from the Johnson team uh, in the election uh, at the end of last year, which is a, a push for return to normalcy, that people want to take the heat out of the conversation. The one complicating thing about that, of course, is that we had a revolution in 2016 election that was really about sort of pushing against the status quo. So I think Biden has to somehow be able to promote both comfort and also make sure that uh, he's making clear that it does not mean a return back to the settlement that people rejected four years ago. Thank you very much for that, and I think we'll come back as well to um, sort of some of the
1: differences between, um, you know, what a President Trump would look like again, second term, and, and, and President Biden. But before uh, we do so, Sir Peter, um, you know, governments around the world are obviously waiting with anticipation, um, and there'll be this will be a really busy time at the British Embassy um, in Washington. You know, how in your experience, how would the government typically prepare for this? Um, and in in your view, and this is a bit of a cheeky question, do you think the government now is prepared for whatever comes
4: next? Uh, thanks for the nice, easy question, Georgie, and and very good to be with you all. Now, when you are a diplomat abroad, election year, especially in the United States, is the kind of fun time. That's when there are really interesting things to do. You go out on the campaign trail. You attend some of the rallies. You go to the conventions. You chat to the candidates. You get a feel for what's going on partly because the government you're representing back home wants to know and partly because you've got to be ready for whoever wins uh, to hit the ground running and get the relationship functioning in order to defend your own national interest and if you think back a little bit to 1992 and bill clinton for example there was jonathan powell who was the uh, first secretary in our political section running around spending almost a year with the Clinton team. And then a couple of years later, he was Tony Blair's chief of staff. So I think the relationships built during that period made a lot of difference. And even if you're not going to leave civil service and become a political person, uh, those relationships that you can create during campaign time are extremely important. But this year is completely different because we've got COVID. um, We have got all sorts of problems with the normal events that are not gonna take place as they used to. I remember that uh, when Mitt Romney was running against President Obama in early November, in other words, closer to the election than we are now, there was I in his battle bus with candidate Romney and Paul Ryan, his vice president running mate, uh, drinking a coffee before he went on stage for his final rally and just talking about the prospects and you know working together if he won and if he didn't, well, you know, see you around kind of thing. So we were engaged in a way that it's very difficult now. We got a fabulous ambassador in Washington and Karen Pierce, But I know that it is not as easy to go and do all those things now as it used to be. And the second problem, of course, is that whereas the incumbent is a known quantity and you don't have to spend quite the same amount of time getting to know people, with the challenger, uh, at this occasion, you have got Team Biden with a lot of people around him who foreign governments, including ours, I like to think especially ours, you know know very well from the time when they worked in the Obama team, but they have got a self-denying ordinance at the moment, which is that they must not engage with other governments and representatives of other governments because they don't want to be accused by Trump of somehow having sold out to or being part of some foreign conspiracy to do him down. Actually, the Trump team, before they took office, were busy undermining the Obama administration and busy trying to Uh, make other governments change their policies even before they take an office, but that's kind of history. But now, uh, because of the toxic nature of this campaign and because it's a campaign like no other, it isn't quite like that. So it's quite difficult. Um, And I suppose the third point I would say very briefly is that, of course, as everybody's read ad infinitum in the papers, the last couple of Prime Ministers here in the United Kingdom have made a point of getting very close to the Trump administration, and that has not gone without notice, if you like, uh, in, the, in the Biden team. And so there will be a bit of work to be done in the event that Biden wins, in the event that we get another Trump term, well, it'll be business as usual and, and that relationship will continue in the strong basis that, uh, that we have seen over the last few years.
1: Thank you very much for that. Um I, I'm reminded when the Japanese government went to the Trump Tower and, and how uh, the Obama Presidency didn't appreciate that because Obama was still president until uh, January. Um you speaking on. briefly about sort of the campaign, how it's evolving, um, and a little bit about the candidates. So Peter, maybe I can stay with you, building on your, your remarks just now um about sort of Biden and, and his team and what they think of the government. You know. What what do you think a Biden win would mean for the UK?
4: Well, the first thing that we would see is a degree of familiarity (laughs) from those of us who've been around a little while, because as Vice President, Joe Biden was regularly in the United Kingdom. A lot of us got to know him very well. We were used to dealing with him and the senior members of the Biden-Obama team, many of whom are part of his campaign now, and a number of whom we would expect to see in senior positions in a Biden administration. So there would be, uh, I think, a degree of continuity uh, and familiarity. So that's a, uh, I think that is a plus. In terms of relationships, well, as I was just saying, uh, the vice president, as, as they call him at the moment, Joe Biden and a lot of his team, have noticed the positioning of the British government in recent years. You know, that's, that's life, they, they are realistic. There are also people, from the president-elect as he would be downwards, who have their reservations about Brexit. You know, they didn't think this was a brilliant idea from Americans' point of view, they didn't think it was very good for Europe, they didn't think it was very good for the UK. Of course, they're realists, they know that this has happened, Uh, but they will be looking at the relationship with the UK in a slightly different way. And of course, they will be looking at the Britain in the context of what is their relationship with the European Union, and what is the priority that they will be giving to relationships with other major European countries, particularly France and Germany, But of course, because it's Biden who has got strong British roots, but also strong Irish roots, then Ireland will be important as well. And you would have noticed that uh, there was some tweeting, both from the Vice President and from members of his team, saying, I do hope, I mean, I'm putting it politely, I do hope that the Internal Market Bill and the conclusion of the Brexit transition process does not create problems for the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, because that is something which they care about a lot in Irish America. And thinking back to the 1990s, Biden was one of the four very significant Democratic senators who put pressure on President Clinton to take what he called the risk for peace uh, and invite Martin McGuinness and Gerry Adams to the White House, uh, not quite over the dead body of John Major, but certainly over the you know, uh, to the be, to be <laughs> consternation of British government officials at the time. So that will be an important part of it. But I think on a lot of the international issues that we care about, there will be very significant and and positive business to be conducted with a Biden administration. Um, We may come back to Iran, but you know, Iran was one of the big foreign policy achievements of the Biden-Obama team. We were all involved with it. We were co-signatories. It's something that Donald Trump has torn up. He's now pursuing a policy of maximum pressure. Um, I think there will be a different approach to Iran, although the Iranians themselves can do quite a lot to make that easier to, to contemplate if they wish to do so. I think there will be more multilateralism. We won't have any talk of America leaving NATO. That will be reassuring for Britain. Tobias will know a lot more about that. It will not, it'll be more multilateral rather than unilateral. Uh, of course, he will still have to look after a lot of the, uh, not necessarily America first, but shall we say American national interests, which were behind many of the hot button issues that President Trump touched on and which led to his election, the sense of people being left behind, the sense that free trade isn't actually a rising tide that raises all boats, but that it has been something which has allowed China to eat everybody else's lunch uh, and to have a pretty good ride in terms of special treatment through the WTO and so on. So he'll have to, of course, think about those things and organised labour, which is important to the Democratic Party, will be nervous about some aspects of, of free trade. And on the back of COVID-19, I think you will see America just like you're seeing the British government saying we're not too sure about these very long supply chains. What about the resilience of our industry and our businesses? We need to have some of these things made and produced and stored near home rather than the other side of the world where one outbreak of another virus suddenly means that we can no longer produce any of our motor cars or any of our airplanes or any of our pharmaceuticals. So it's not quite deglobalization, but and it's not quite renationalization, but it's a recalibration of the global economy. And I think Biden would be uh, a part of that. And then on one or two of the other foreign policy issues like you know, Saudi Arabia and Turkey and so on, countries which Biden knows extremely well. He also knows Xi Jinping extremely well from the day when he was vice president. He spent a lot of time taking him out of America. This is a man who's got 40 years of experience of foreign policy and of working with foreign leaders. And I think that can be something on which we can draw and which the United Kingdom, as we move on from the four years of introversion of Brexit and rediscover, I hope, uh, a global mission, i like to think there's a whole series of those uh, foreign policy and global issues, not least climate change, where we're going to be chairing the COP uh, next year, on which we can engage constructively with uh, Biden administration. So I think, you know, it'll be a little bit bumpy right at the beginning, but lots of potential to do a lot of important things together in the future.
1: Thank you. That was really comprehensive, and, we've, and it's triggered quite a few questions actually on sort of the you know relative importance of the UK to the US. Will we see the US you know speaking more to Paris and Berlin? We'll come back to that. But also the special relationship and the and the prospects for a trade deal, which we'll come back to as well. Um, Leslie, maybe I can turn to you about sort of, you know how different would a second Trump uh, administration be for the UK? Um, in terms of yeah sort of foreign policy priorities.
2: Yeah. I mean I think if um if President Trump is possible, not because um not because it would be through any kind of popular vote, but because there's a lot of complications with turnout and with the process of voting and potentially with the process of counting the votes. And we're watching that in in a lot of detail right now in states like Pennsylvania, but in a number of states. Um first of all if President Trump is reelected he will take it is validation, regardless what the national numbers might tell him. I don't I think that would be rapidly dismissed. And I, I think what that means uh, are a couple of things. First of all, at on November 4th or November 5th or November 12th or whenever that decision were to come in, probably sooner rather than later, if it's a if it's a Trump re-election. Um, America continues to be in a position where the pandemic, uh, the the rate of the spread of the virus is out of control in the vast majority of states, uh, where there is some re- recovery in terms of growth and where there is a lot of movement by Pfizer and other companies to get a vaccine. So I think the first implication, and it certainly has a, has significance for the UK, is that the Trump administration will double down on its policy, which is open up the economy, Ignore the spread and go real, really, really, really hard and deep on getting a vaccine. And the and the second part of that will be vaccine nationalism. America first will be all about getting the vaccine and getting it for and doing whatever trade deals, whatever bilateral deals, whatever brokerages the president needs to do with companies. Um, And others uh, states where if it becomes relevant, if an Oxford trial comes through and there's a vaccine, doing whatever it takes to get that vaccine for America, because that is really the only strategy that this president has for bringing the pandemic under control. He simply will not commit to social distancing, wearing masks, closing businesses. In fact, I think we will see quite the opposite if the president is reelected. He will go for, for opening in the most extraordinary way um, to the extent that the that the federal government can actually put pressure on states and deny states resources to force them to open. I think we will see that happen. So vaccine nationalism will be the first really immediate um, and present global implication that will have effects um, on the United Kingdom, especially if a vaccine comes out of the Oxford trials. Um, I think, you know, the the broader issues when we get there. Um, the the president cares a lot about getting a Nobel Peace Prize. And and I know that sounds, you know, it sounds you know, what we want to talk is about: does, does he care about a US-UK free trade deal? Does he care about China? Does he care about trade? Absolutely. He will double down on his China agenda, he will double down on his trade agenda which will be very much about tariffs and bilateralism. And if the U.S.-U.K. trade deal fits into that and works for America, fine. And if not, I think he'll be very happy to discard it. Um, but I do think that he cares about getting a Nobel Peace Prize. And so the question is, where does he try to get that? And that's really complicated to see because it's very hard to see how he gets that in North Korea. It's not clear what that would mean for the U.K. if, if he did go that direction. Iran might be something that he goes the more obvious um point of direction uh, based on recent developments would be Israel um, and and that part of the Middle East, right? Pursuing that agenda. And and there's a big question about, you know, what role does the UK play in that and what implication does it have? Um, And then the final thing, I think, you know, the president cares a lot about legacy and what comes next. And so I think it wouldn't be very long before we would start to see more of what we've seen in terms of appointing family members. Um, and friends and loyalists, but it it might take on a different dimension when we when we're talking about a president who's unconstrained, who can't be reelected, who doesn't really care about the domestic costs that he might suffer for for violating any number of um So while on the domestic front than the foreign front, obviously there are a number of um, of implications, but I would look to the immediate one first, and that's about the handling of the pandemic, borders, the vaccine, um, etc.
1: Great, and we we've had quite a number of questions as well about. You know, what if Trump loses the election and how he might react and what that would mean for these sort of couple of weeks that follow, and perhaps we could come back to that. Um, Tobias, uh, we've had quite a cheeky question come in, um, and I feel I should ask you this one. Um, What do you think is preferable for this government, a Biden or or a Trump win? And you're on mute, just
3: to. Um, Maybe it's better I do leave my uh, computer on mute for this particular one. We need, uh, as Sir Peter was was uh, indicating, then uh, you know there is an obligation that uh, we recognise that we need to work with both sides. And at this this side of the actual election itself, um, it it would be inappropriate to sort of choose a winner. All I can articulate, perhaps, is the desire as to how we would want to work with either of them. Um, Sir Peter would be better placed to answer this, um, but. Is there a tendency for a second-termer American president uh, to start thinking, in fact, we just touched on this, those legacy issues. Is there the ability to nudge uh, the president to look at these wider international concerns rather than simply focusing on the domestic? Now, with that in mind, then there is a possibility which would then match, I think, what we've really heard from Joe Biden, who's made a commitment to, to re-engage with the international circuit, recognise that there are some big issues there that have been left in abeyance. So, in fact, whoever wins, there's an opportunity for Britain. I have to say Britain itself needs to uh, you know, move up a gear. It, it's We've been distracted for the last you know, two or three years, Brexit and otherwise. And also, I think we've simply become risk averse. We've become less energetic in, uh, and that's afraid to do with the bandwidth, the machine of government in number 10. The integrated Review is a real opportunity for us to upgrade um, our uh, en- engagement with the international world. I think thanks to, to people like Sir Peter and, and all the fantastic diplomats we have, our understanding of the world is second to none. Our reach, uh, our respect, uh, our appreciation of what's going on, and the thought leadership that we give to America arguably is the best in the world. That's why we have this special relationship. What we're seeing, though, operationally, is us being perhaps overtaken by other countries, not a single country, but depending on the areas that you're actually considering, whether it be the Middle East, it could very well be the UAE. When it comes to Germany, it could very well be, be uh, sorry Europe, it could very well be Germany, or France. Intelligence-wise, absolutely, we're there. So there's a big question as to how we then engage. What I would say, though, is looking back at Donald Trump and then what needs to happen is there's an awful lot of tactical reaction going on rather than developing strategy. China, you can say Donald Trump has, during his um, tenure, has actually made it very clear to the world what China is actually all about. The the gloves have come off. Everybody's no longer looking at them through rose-tinted glasses. But what do we do about it? There isn't really an answer to that. Tariffs really are reactionary. Even us in Hong Kong, giving passports to those who lived there pre-97 is reactionary. It won't change China's behaviour. It won't change change China's attitude in the South China Sea or China's push for, uh, you know, gifting 5G around the world, which lures more and more countries into Chinese influence. So some big questions there is how we take the tactical decisions Even America telling the UK, don't use Huawei. Well, that's all very well. But what is the strategic answer? What's the counterweight to to the high-tech solutions that China is putting forward to? NATO was mentioned before. Yes, increased uh, spending to 2%. Trump, I think, managed um, to encourage countries to do that. But what is NATO's purpose now? And America pulling troops out of Europe, well, that actually sends a difficult message as well. Daesh, tough on Daesh and um, chemical weapons attacks in Syria. But again, it was punitive. It was uh, very bespoke, uh, very detailed, not not looking at the wider picture. And I think that's the next challenge. And you can only do that collectively. We can only do that on a multilateral approach. And that's what we'd be looking for, for whoever is in the White House over the next four years.
1: All very important points and obviously building on what Leslie was saying earlier depends on who is in the White House and how they, you know, what they think of multilateralism. We've got quite a number of uh, questions that come in on sort of um, more specifically looking at the special relationship, what could they do differently and also on Brexit. So we will come back to those. But before we do, Sophia, um, you wrote recently that Trump's maverick approach to diplomacy has centred around uh, personal relationships. Now, How important are these sort of leader to leader relationships to the special relationship? And, you know, how does number 10 see this? Is this important?
0: I think they're absolutely integral to the special relationship. And this is not something that has just begun under Trump's leadership. This is something that I think all of us will uh, remember in even uh, in rather recent history, uh, those close relations have, have uh, been quite consequential. I do think that it's, important to remember that when we're looking at Trump's term from the UK side of things, and certainly the political dimensions of this, you cannot separate the fact that Trump's term has coincided with the Brexit process and the Brexit referendum, because this has created a political lens, which I think we've been seeing playing out in a number of ways. If you're going to be leaving your largest trading partner, it makes sense that you need to find a rather big new friend uh, to try and uh, fill that gap. So, of course, there's been a sort of political imperative uh, to be pursuing closer relations, to be emphasising the degree to which a Trump presidency, which we know, you know, was not necessarily what the British people had been hoping for, um, to securitize them and say, look, I know this guy's a bit uh, unusual, but here's this enormous dividend through these closer relations and how this will uh, benefit our economy. So I think that this, this dichotomy that's been created about moving away from the European Union and then moving closer to the United States um, has certainly been a clear political strategy and it's it's been helpful for the government to have something that they could uh, really point towards as a dividend and I think that's also why we've seen them uh, quite happily allowing these uh ideas of there being an obstacle to uh a biden presidency through his sort of views vis-a-vis on uh the brexit negotiations and the island peace process and so on you know it's been helpful while well, trump has been president to allow those concerns um to percolate that said i think you know it's it's I think number 10, uh around the degree to which the British public uh, turned rather sour towards uh, the United States under Donald Trump. And certainly we haven't been hearing a huge amount about the uh, free trade agreement over recent weeks. Of course, they weren't able to push that through before uh, we, that things got really into campaigning mode. Um, but I do think that uh, it's absolutely clear. If you look at the UK's foreign policy objectives and what the signals we've already received about what will be in the integrated review, um, a Biden presidency aligns much more closely with our broader strategic objectives. Um, And it is also true that a Trump presidency puts an enormous degree of pressure on the United Kingdom to play a much stronger role in the governance of global institutions and the liberal world order more generally. So there's a huge kind of resource constraint there. But I do think that uh, the one area that will be a little bit complicated is that uh, and potentially just on a political level, not institutionally, but is that, of course, we know that one of the priorities of Biden's um, foreign policy uh, platform will be around strengthening transatlantic relations. And as part of that, he will be seeking to encourage a closer relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. Um, This is. The, it all goes back to the reasons why uh, Brexit wasn't necessarily viewed especially favourably in Washington. So I think, you know, we know that the priority for the at least the rest of this political term with the Global Britain Project is a a, a, a proactive pivot away from the European neighbourhood we know they're going to be trying to direct intellectual firepower and resources towards the Indo-Pacific and so on so I think just having uh, you know potentially President Biden sort of uh, bearing down on us trying to push for a closer relationship with the European Union at the time could be politically tricky but I do think on balance institutionally uh, it. it it would make sense uh, and and actually be somewhat of a relief for the uk's uh, foreign policy objectives with the globe britain project thank
1: you so much and we will definitely come back to um to that because we've had a number of questions about you know the uk's position now that it's outside of the eu what role it will serve for the us um, and we will definitely come back to that i wanted to focus now briefly on sort of the special relationship so Both countries have had a lot going on um, over the past four years, Um, but the special relationship so far appears to be going strong. We did get an intervention very early on from Kiffer Roberts, who says, you know, I'm Canadian. Canada has a strong relationship uh, with the United States. Why is it that the UK's relationship is is special? And is it more special than any other relationships uh, that the US has with individual countries? Um, So, Peter, maybe I can turn to you. You know, you mentioned areas of mutual interest, how uh, the UK government could work with uh, a President Biden if he's elected. Tobias and Sophia have talked about, you know, the UK needing to be more proactive. What do you think, you know, what does and should the UK really expect from its special relationship? And and if I can tag another question is, you know, has that changed since you were ambassador
4: uh, to the United States? It's it's a term which is quite difficult to, um, to manage in my view. I didn't like to talk about the special relationship because I thought there was a certain arrogance and exclusivity to the concept and it annoyed some of our other partners, many of which also think they've got special relationships with America, whether they are France, the oldest ally, whether it's Israel, whether it's Ireland, whether it's Canada next door, you know, there's a lot of countries that have got special relationships It's a term that was coined very usefully, almost transactionally by Winston Churchill in the Second World War and it served a very valuable purpose. It's still out there, there is a special relationship, but I don't like using the term the. But uh, the reality is that whoever is in the White House, there are some very special aspects to the relationship that we have had. Oddly enough, although the last couple of British governments have made a point of trying to get close to the Trump administration, Inviting him to the United Kingdom state visits and so on, um, I was very struck by how, despite proclaiming that he was a big supporter of Brexit, when he came to the United Kingdom, he actually made Theresa May's life rather difficult by pointing out some, in his judgment, weaknesses in the in the case in the in the package that she was trying to get through the British Parliament in order to secure the withdrawal agreement. You know, so. He was a little bit all over the place, if I can put it like that, even though he was saying that he thought Brexit was marvellous. But that was as much because he doesn't like the European Union as because I think he'd worked out that it was good for the United Kingdom. But that was a part of it. Uh, in many respects, the relationship was close. And he talked about an alliance, you know, the strongest alliance the world has ever known, which always goes down well in the United Kingdom uh, when he came but also President Obama used to say something broadly similar when he had visiting Prime Ministers in the United Kingdom. And all of them, the one thing they've got in common is that they become uh, unbelievably uh, attached to the British Royal Family. (laughs) And uh, we saw that with everybody's visits and with the extraordinarily warm welcome that I used to see the members of the Royal Family always received from President Obama and so on, and other people in the United States when they went there. But I think on the substance, you know, what do we want from uh, that relationship at the moment? Uh, I'm not sure there's a good answer to Tobias's excellent question. You know, what's the legacy if there's another Trump four years? He didn't bother to spell out what the program was four more years. It was just, trust me, I'm me and I'm not Biden and he's dreadful and sleepy. Uh, and, you know, America and the world needs four more years of me. But it wasn't much more sophisticated than that. So I don't honestly know what the legacy would be. It could be pretty damaging, like withdrawing the United States from NATO, like ensuring that his promise to pull America out of the climate accords really does take effect because it hasn't taken effect yet. And it could mean a good deal more unilateralism rather than multilateralism and more America first and so on. But we don't honestly know. For the United Kingdom, whoever is the president after the uh, 3rd of November, Obviously, we would like to see a free trade agreement. I'm one of those people who doesn't think that a free trade agreement with America is ever going to come close to making up for the economic damage of leaving the single market customs union. And indeed, the the independent analysts have said that over a decade, it might give us 0.2% of additional GDP if there was a comprehensive free trade agreement between Britain and America. But optically, politically, it would be helpful. Uh, Especially if we're going to leave the European Union without a deal, which means that our trading relationship with most of our allies, partners outside the EU, as well as inside the EU, is going to be pretty significantly damaged. So either way, that would be, I think, a plus, but we should not fool ourselves that it makes a big economic difference. I think that Trump would be happy to go along with that. I think President Biden would be happy to do it as well, but bear in mind that Congress, as we all know, is in charge of trade negotiations and the fast track authority expires on the 1st of July next year. And so there isn't much time to get it through on on the present uh, tramlines, if you like, of free trade negotiations. I think that there will be the same difficult issues on agriculture, on protectionism, on public procurement, on financial services, Our dear old friends, beef, hormones, and chlorine-washed chicken, that's going to be there, whoever the president is. Uh, And those will be difficult to address, but I'm sure that the British government will want to make progress in that area. I think in addition to that, what we will want to do, again, whoever is is going to be in the White House, we will want to make the best of the real strengths that we do have in that relationship. Uh, The the defence, the interoperability, the cyber security, the cyber capabilities that both countries have developed, uh, the intelligence cooperation that Tobias and, and others have mentioned. This is pretty much second to none. And that's not just the former ambassador, you know, giving ourselves a puff. It is, it, it is world-class uh, for once, <laughs> uh, that part of the relationship. And I think that uh, we will want to make sure that that continues and those remain strengths, not just for the relationship, but I like to think for the safety and prosperity of the world more generally. And then I think I would like to see a slightly more uh, generous approach. I mean, most people in Britain don't know, for example, that Scotch whisky is currently subject to 25% tariff in the United States and shortbread biscuits and cashmere jumpers, all because of the Boeing Airbus trade dispute, which has been kicking around for the last 15 years, and which is frankly, exhausted both sides of what we would call in football terms, a score draw. Uh, Both sides have got something to answer for, but why the rest of our trading relationship has to pay the penalty of that, I I don't really know. And uh, it feels a bit discriminatory. That's not the way you treat close allies. Um, with something like 25% tariffs and indeed steel exports, same sort of thing. So I think a slightly more benevolent approach to some of those controversial issues would be helpful. Of course, Donald Trump is somebody who believes strongly in tariffs and trade wars. He thinks that everything is a balance, everything is zero sum. And I think international trade, in my view, is a little more complex than that.
3: But either way, uh,
4: whoever is going to be there, I think uh, it would be good to have an easier, better oiled, a trading relationship between the two countries, as well as finding new ways of ensuring that all the foreign policy issues that we've already touched on, not least China, that there are ways in which Britain and America can work even more effectively together in the future.
1: Thank you very much for that. And actually, I was going to come back to you later on, on sort of, you know, Trump and whether his transactional approach meant that actually a trade deal was, was very difficult to achieve. Um, Leslie, um, it obviously takes two to tango uh, in in any relationship, um, uh, but, you know, there, are some, there have been some real areas of tension over the past four years between both countries on climate change, the Iran deal, Huawei, which was mentioned by Tobias. You know, and, and one of the things that I pick up on when I talk to colleagues in, in Washington is, you know, what is the UK's agenda for the US? You know, we, we want you to tell us what you want. So my question to you really is, what do you think the US expects from the UK?
2: I mean, I think, I, you know, obviously it depends on which way it goes. Um, it, I think that um, a Biden administration uh, would absolutely want to work with the UK on security, on the economy, on climate. And ideally, I mean, Biden's plans, whether it's on climate or on, or on the economy, both of which have national but also tremendous global significance, not least for the US and the UK, are quite radical by US standards, they're not, you know, they're not business as normal. There's nothing in there that's business as normal. He will be leading, if he leads, a coalition in his own party that is very, very diverse. And as soon as the gloves are off and President Trump has been defeated, the progressives in Biden's party are not going to let him off the hook, right? So we could be looking at a really, really radical set of policies progressive policies that move America into a different space in terms of the longer-term recovery and that look to the UK as a critical partner in that. And so I think that, you know, if that happens, it won't be easy in domestic terms, um, but if that happens, I think the United States will be looking to the United Kingdom to be a partner in a really serious climate agenda that's integrated with the economic recovery that's focused on jobs and supply chains and all sorts of issues. Um, but I, I think that, you know, I, I think that the United States probably would like to see the United Kingdom. It, I know it's a little bit rich for, for the Americans to say this, but I think they'd like to see Britain past the whole Brexit thing. Right. And <laughs> to get the UK back uh, to thinking strategically about its role in the world and its partnership with, with the United States, um, it would be good if the United States could kind of get past the Trump thing and the United Kingdom can get past the Brexit thing. And both countries could become a bit more strategic and a little bit more proactive in terms of looking beyond very narrow, very domestically constrained, very small uh, for several years now so getting on board a climate agenda really getting on board the china question in a serious way and also moving into thinking about you know something um in the medium term that has to do with uh western-based cooperation on providing serious alternatives on things like infrastructure financing across um, the global south uh, you know ways to get indirect but really serious and important ways i think that you know, once we are through the pandemic and have good preventative measures in place for that and the vaccine issue is kind of managed um, and there's some sort of broader recovery, I think that a Biden administration really will want the UK on board as a strategic partner on climate, on China and on trade, but really thinking very globally, not just the you know, US-UK free trade deal. That's really, really important, but it's really quite small relative to the big global issues at the time.
1: Great, thank you very much for that. Um, So, Bias, um, Sir Peter mentioned um, a little bit sort of defence earlier on, and so did you with NATO. Um, There's obviously a strong defence component to the special relationship, Um, though Trump has criticised NATO, but even Obama was quite cautious on military intervention. Do you think the UK and the US will still see eye to eye uh, on defence and what role they should play, regardless of who wins um next week
3: yeah i think this is a really core part of that special relationship if i can continue to use that term i'm slightly biased i'm i was born in new york i'm a dual national uh and it is something that perhaps uh uh i would love to see invigorated it, it is important i think uh, peter actually uses a, a a good term rather than the it, it is a special relationship we we should absolutely recognise that the United States has, has very strong bonds with other nations. But there is something, I think, quite exceptional about the, the, the bond that is, has developed over the last sort of few decades. Um, there's a great uh, statue in Arlington Cemetery um, of somebody called Field Marshal Sir John Dill. Uh, Sir Peter, you may, may recognise the name. Um, he was this character that forged that special relationship. He drank a phenomenal amount of whiskey with Dulles and Marshall during the Second World War. And it was, it proved to the Americans that, uh, I go back to the point, that Britain does have a a fantastic understanding of of the world around us. Where we need to be better at is then turning that into uh, actual practical application. Big challenges ahead of us, as I mentioned, a difficult decade ahead. Uh, for me the biggest is is the a sputnik moment if you like a recognition the, of the geopolitical challenge that china presents that we need to counter they're not going away but they are advancing a competing ideology uh, which is going to take us into a very difficult place if we don't work together and that is something that's going back to you know the atlantic charter if this was a you know creation a product of both the united states and britain and other nations joined on um, board and we should be doing exactly that because we have some of our international architecture the United Nations and so forth um, that needs updating and needs um, uh, being making uh, relevant for the, the world we live in today and that I think is something that we must both confront I'm not hearing the noises I have to say on the integrated view that that's where we want to go it's almost too bold and I'm not hearing that much on from the United States either but that simply might be because much of the focus is on domestic Issues, but from where I sit as chair of the Defence Select Committee, and from speaking to my counterparts and the other numbers, and looking, you know, to, to some of the challenges that we faced, for me that's where I'd like to go. And this special relationship, yes, it's personalities. We see that between Reagan and Thatcher was probably the best illustration. But it's not partisan lines. I think you had JFK and Macmillan; they were uh, on either side of the different aisle. Likewise with with uh, Blair. And Bush was mentioned as well. But even if that relationship isn't as cosy as perhaps as we like, it is rubbing shoulders on the diplomatic corridors, uh, on the factory floors through procurement the kit, and of course on the battlefield as well. Um, so that's what I'd like to see.
1: Great. Thank you. I, I realise we're fast running out of time and I do want to come back to you sort of Brexit and and, um, and sort of the UK's That's position incredible. from 2021. <laughs> we will come back to that. But before I do, I, I wanted to ask, Sylvia, you, you wrote a, a report, a fascinating report, actually, on, on sort of UK and China's relationship. In your view, and we've had quite a couple, uh, sort of a couple of questions come through on this as well. You know, Which president would be better, do you think, for the UK's relationship with China and in particular sort of Hong Kong and Taiwan?
0: So I think it's important to note that, you know, the UK has been through a a quite significant process over the past two years in terms of its um, shifting its gears on its relations with China and and certainly the institutional view on its relations with China. I think we're actually at a moment of a little bit of crisis internally because I think it's it's dawning on everybody the degree to which Uh, You know, we have to be very creative and expansive in thinking about, you know, this is not just about securitizing our critical national infrastructure, but also our economic markets. It's also about our higher education sector. It's also about securitizing our democracy. Um, So I think there's there's a sort of dawning consciousness of the scale of the task at hand. That said, I think it's important to note that in the United States, there is a degree of bipartisanship on the sort of relatively robust position regarding China. I do think there are quite significant distinctions between the approach of another Trump term and a Biden presidency, because I think it will mainly be about tone and also in terms of the way in which uh, the UK would seek to influence and contain, if that is the strategy. Um, China's, uh, I suppose, increasing incursions into its, um, its, its region. But I think uh, there is an the area of significant co- opportunity for cooperation between the UK and the US on China, but we will always be driven by quite significant social environments. And, and I think this is important to note. In the UK, the, the China story is a story about foreign policy, global security. There's some dimension of uh, questions about uh, you know, manufacturing and reshoring, uh, manufacturing uh, and supply chain capabilities. In the United States, the, a lot of the public concern about China is very much tied into the concerns about globalization. And I think that is considerably weaker in the UK environment. So, in, because in the UK, a lot of those concerns would be channeled through our relationship with the European Union. So, they're, they're quite distinct social environments, which is going to create different constraints and opportunities for the political leaders when they're thinking about their choices. My sense is that the UK government will seek to try and pursue a kind of third way where we do securitize quite significantly, but we also uh, try and keep some kind of degree of open, pragmatic economic relationship. I think climate change, it's quite clear that we will try and pursue some cooperation around that. And we do, the institutional view here is that it's better to have China at the table. And I think with COP26 and G7 presidency next year, this will be really, um, we will see a lot more on that. But I do also think this is where the UK will try and lead through cooperation and new alliance. Um, they're sort of being termed flexible alliances, but I think you know we'll be hearing a lot more about the D10. We'll be hearing a lot more about CPTPP. So I think you know through international cooperation and also through an economic lens, uh, we will seek to engage more in the Asia Pacific region. And and I think our presence there will be very much welcomed by uh, not only the, the United States but also Australia as well, another key security ally. Thank you very much for that. And I'm glad you
1: brought up the D10 because we had a question from Michael Shaw specifically asking about where that would go. Right. We, we're fast running out of time. So I'm going to ask our panellists to be short and sweet. Um, I was going to end with who you thought would win, but I won't ask that because that's just cheeky. So um, I'm going to now focus on sort of Brexit. I have to bring in Brexit um, and the impact of Brexit. Leslie, um, in your view, has Brexit damaged the UK's reputation in the US? We heard from Sir Peter, you know, how Biden um, uh, campaigned um, some people in Washington, how they've reacted. You, you said that, you know, you, the US just wants the UK to move on from this. Uh, but President Trump seems to think it's an excellent idea. So um, has it damaged the UK's reputation?
2: Of course it has. I mean, you know, I, I think it's beyond the shadow of a doubt. The favourite parlour game, um, you know, between the United States and the United Kingdom, the Brits say, "Well, at least we don't have Trump," and the Americans say, "Well, at least we don't have Brexit. We can get rid of Trump, and you you can't get rid of Brexit." I mean, it, you know, it's gone for for a very long time, and it's um, it you know, it, it does actually go to a broader point. Which I
1: I think we might have to come back to you because your connection is is a bit dodgy. Oh, the joys of twenty uh, first century um, yeah. virtual yeah. events! I'll come back to you, Lizzie. Um, Tobias um, you travel regularly or at least you did before Covid um, to the US what do your colleagues think in Congress about, about the UK uh,
3: well that's a big question but certainly post Brexit um, I spent a bit of effort uh, uh, reaching out to some of my friends in Congress I found myself needing to do a lot more of that um, after the Internal Markets Bill uh, went through and was with, after a second reading the I was really concerned. I I was the one that stood up along with other MPs and said, this is not who Britain is. This is not what we stand for. We can't tell the world that we're willing to um, avoid international law or or be willing to breach it. Even if there are examples around the world where that's been done in one way or another, uh, what Britain and the United States, what binds us together is actually our Defence of international law is wanting to encourage other countries to raise their game uh, to match ours. So, for us to to actually lower the bar in this sense, I think would be very dangerous indeed. Not least, as touched on before, um, it then there was some concern about the uh, Good Friday Agreement as well. So, I was phoning colleagues to say, "Listen, this is just uh, it was it was actually I think the wrong wrong bullet point on the the sheet of paper that the minister responded to." but um, maybe you might need to edit that out because I'm not sure everybody really was aware of that, but the uh, it, it, it was an accident, and therefore it goes back to the, as with all a lot of our politics, it's not so much about the event itself, Brexit, it's how you how you manage that message. I'm actually convinced we will get a deal. If there's anything that's still left over, such as fisheries agreements, it will be parked into the long grass. The dangers of, of going out, I mean, uh, without a deal are just so significant. Uh, and unhelpful for our relationship with Europe, but also elsewhere, um, that I think they will be avoided. But of course, I call these things, it goes to the wire. But ultimately, it has been a distraction internally, uh, as well as internationally as well. And once we can get uh, this behind us onto a, a into a sort of more... Uh, understandable and and uh you know clear place then we can start focusing on these wider issues that we've spent the last hour discussing and that's so important because right now the bandwidth in number 10 is just overwhelmed and we don't even have the capacity or space to explore some of these international challenges because we're so focused um on on these issues not least uh, the pandemic which we've hardly even touched on
1: Thank you. We, I now realise that it's eleven, so I will um, turn to you, Sir Peter. Perhaps the last word. Um, you know, we've had quite a few questions about this. The UK often, or you know, considers itself a bridge between the US and the EU. Do you think this still can be the case from twenty twenty one?
4: I think a bridge in that sense, no. Uh, because we have got Brexit, we've left the European Union legally, and I agree with Tobias, I think in the coming weeks, for all the puffing and puffing and posturing, there will be a not very good deal, but a deal nevertheless, uh, which allows the United Kingdom to finish the rest of its relationship, particularly the trading relationship, Uh, with the European Union uh, in some sort of order, but the problem is that we have always mattered in Washington in part, at least for the last 40 years, because of the influence, because of the clout that we had at the heart of the European Union, and a lot of the best things the European Union has done over the years, which mattered to America, the creation of a single market, which everybody's become more prosperous from, or the enlargement of the EU to protect new democracies after they left this uh, Uh, Soviet oppression, a number of good things that happened in the European Union, which were close to American interests, were down to the United Kingdom. Similarly, I think a lot of our European Union partners paid us more attention because the reality was that the United Kingdom was uh, a very serious player in Washington. We had better access than pretty well everybody, not always, Uh, and we always had to work on it, and it was always a mistake if you took that for granted. But the fact is that we were serious players in Washington. And so for in both directions, both from Europe and from Washington, our positioning as a serious player at the heart of Europe was a part of the clout and the strength and the political importance that we had. That's now gone. So it won't be a bridge because we won't be in the European Union and we're not a bridge to anywhere. We will be on our own, somewhere uh, offshore the European Union, somewhere in the Atlantic and creating something out of global Britain. I'm still not quite clear what global Britain means, but if you like developing new relationships, Still hanging on to the really important elements of the bilateral relationship with America that we were talking about before. That's not going to go anywhere. And much of that should also mean that we can remain important allies and partners for our European Union friends. Though I'm personally disappointed that there's absolutely no consideration of foreign and security policy, structured cooperation with the EU in the current negotiations between London and Brussels. I think that's a mistake, but maybe after all the hullabaloo and the red game is over, we will come back to our senses and, and restore a degree of importance there. And to the extent that we are part of European security framework, though they won't like the word framework, then we will begin to matter again uh, to Washington in terms of being a European power. But the short answer to your question at the moment, uh, is that bridge still there? No, it's not, uh, because we left the European Union uh, and because both for Europeans and for Americans, we do not count uh, to the same extent that we did.
1: Thank you so much. Um, there are so many questions that came through about, you know, would a President Harris make a difference? Can the UK and the US work in new groupings? So Sophia mentioned the D10, but there were other questions on there as well, and specific questions about US foreign policy towards China and North Korea. Um, but unfortunately, um, this is all we have time for. Um, I'm sure we could have carried on. Leslie, I'm very sorry we couldn't hear your remarks. And Sophia, I couldn't bring you in for a final uh, word. Um, but thank you so much to my panel for their time today and thank you to our viewers and listeners for all your questions. Um, It's going to be an exciting couple of days and possibly an exciting couple of weeks depending on who wins and whether there's any contest, uh, whether the result is contested or not. Um, But for now thank you very much to my panel and um, hope to see you soon.
0: Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit
3: instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.